I have entitled this message, Safe in the Hands of a Rescuing God. And I have to confess that here in front of us are some of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible. We have John 10. In verse 27, we pick up where we left off last time. Their question was, how long do you leave us in doubt? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? His answer was, I've already told you. Haven't you seen my works? It's interesting that he draws them immediately to his works and his answer, and he comes back now in the text in front of us again to point to his works, and you'll see why. In verse 27, he had just told them that they were not his sheep. That's the religious leaders around him. And he said, my sheep, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? Now he's bringing his works up again. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself to be God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there in that place. Here are the hands of God around his believing people. Here is the claim of Christ to be God. It is very clear. And here is the blessing of God when he goes down to Jordan in contrast to the fact that there had been a long season of ministry in Jerusalem where there was no blessing, as it were, of God. It was not a blessed time. It was a time of persecution. It was a time of rejection. It was a time of heartache. It was a time where he was well acquainted with sorrow and constant grief as they simply rejected one message, one attempt to reach them and save them after the next. So the blessing of God comes at the end of the chapter. In terms of the hands of God, we read here in verse 27, My sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is what we could call the mark of a sheep in God's hands. A true sheep has the shepherd's mark. Shepherds in those days used to mark their sheep. Very commonly, they'd clip a little hole in the side of the sheep's ear. Much as today we brand cattle, they would mark their sheep because there were so many flocks. And the Puritans used to love to take that example and apply it to this text. They would use it in this way. They would say, now when it comes to Christ and his flock... He marks his sheep with a double mark. And the double mark is here in the text that my sheep, they hear my voice, and they're not only marked on the ear, they're marked on the foot. My sheep follow me. If you want to know who my sheep are, look at their ears and look at their feet. That becomes what you call the mark 
of a true sheep. This is, of course, true for every real Christian. It is, of course, not true for anything less. The question then becomes this, to find out, to search your soul, if you are truly one of Christ's sheep. The question is, do you hear and do you follow is another question. Do you hear and do you follow? A few moments ago, I was looking back to chapter 6. Jesus had just come through his whole sermon on being the bread of life. He fed the 5,000 with bread from heaven. That was just a springboard for his sermon on the bread of life, that he was the bread of life. He called them in verse 55. He said, For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And he's calling them there to commitment. You have to give your whole life to me, and I will give my whole life to you. It's a call to commitment. And it's amazing, as he finishes off his sermon, that we read in verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. At that point, the word disciple, as you find it many times in the Bible, it's determined by context. The word basically often is the Greek word, mathetes. It means really a learner. So just because someone is in this place with Christ as a disciple, they're learners. To read that many of his disciples left and didn't walk with him anymore is to say they got far enough where they learned enough about Christ, it became clear enough that they knew they did not want to make that commitment and they walked with him no more. They'd been tagging along with the crowd, they'd been mingled with the crowd perhaps for a couple of years, think of it. Showing up at Jesus' meetings regularly, none other than Christ himself preaching. Think of that. And here they get to the point where when he is done with this sermon, their conclusion is, I'm never coming back. I'm not going to listen to this kind of preaching anymore. Pretty heavy, huh? So by the time you get to chapter 10, and Jesus says, you are not my sheep. And then he says, because my sheep, that's what he says to the religious leaders, because my sheep, they hear my voice and they follow me. You find that it becomes truly a proof of real salvation. It begins to be the kind of thing that reveals the true as opposed to the false. I think of how many that go to church on a Sunday morning in America. Probably untold thousands of people, right? And they listen to a sermon. I wonder how many really actually hear Christ of all those people. When you look at the multitudes that actually walked all over each other to get to Jesus, there's hundreds of thousands that hear throughout his ministry. There's 120 dedicated and praying in Jerusalem when he's done. I wonder how many that actually go to church regularly actually hear the voice of Christ, actually hear what is being communicated. So many come and they obviously, they hear the music. That's why so many churches have big budgets on music and entertainment these days. They hear the music. So many obviously hear the preacher. But the question is, do you hear the voice of Christ? That's the question. And the reason it has to be thought through and answered is because if people really do hear the voice of Christ, even those that claim they do, then why are the ones that even claim they do so critical when they leave? Why are they so critical of the messenger when they were supposed to be hearing the message from the Lord. And so much of that goes on. Why are their comments afterwards so much focused on the man instead of the Messiah? 
That's a telling issue. Those who hear Christ, they follow Christ. I wonder how many come to church and really go away and follow Christ. I mean, follow Him. In the sense of taking His Word, hiding it in their hearts, taking it seriously, not picking and choosing, but taking it all, submitting their lives, as it were, when they go away to the authority of this book. Not pick and choose as I please, but to the authority of the whole book. Jesus said, they follow me. Many people seem to make good leaders in their own cause. James Montgomery Boyce pointed that out in his commentary. He said, but they're poor followers. Good leaders in their own cause, but poor followers. They make good critics, Boyce said, of the Bible and Christ's people, but they're poor disciples in the truest sense. Some make respectable wolves and ravage the flock, but they do not have the traits of sheep. And if they did understand what the true traits of a sheep are, they would even be contentious with you about those issues to say that they have them in their life. But in all reality, they ravage the flock. What's the point of all this? The point is this. Do not presume on your relationship with Jesus Christ just because you go to church regularly, just because you hear sermons regularly, just because you hear music and worship in that sense, sing songs to Him regularly, because unless you truly hear His voice, I mean the impressions of the Spirit of God upon the deepest part of your being, and then respond to those impressions as they line up with the Word of God, unless that is true of you, it is not true that you're a Christian. The tell-all is, do you hear His voice and follow Him? Someone has said that man's life is made up of 20 years of his mother asking him where he's going. And the next 40 years of his wife asking him where he's been. And the last hour of his life is spent at his funeral with everybody wondering where he's going. That's a good little set of thoughts. How many funerals are done where you wonder where the person went? I'll tell you, as a pastor, it's a tragedy. When someone who's been going to church and naming the name of the Lord dies and everybody that knows them sits around and says, I know he went to church and everything, but frankly, I don't really think he was a Christian. And everybody at that point, because it's so sad, is wanting to believe they were. If you were to die right now, we would all have your funeral right now. How many of us would be wondering about you? That's the issue. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You see, you can know if you're a Christian. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the burning desire of your heart. Not perfectly, but you will. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I now know what John was getting at in, in his third epistle. When he wrote an interesting statement in verse 4, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Years into John's life, long time spent in the ministry, many travels. He writes his third epistle, final epistle, final writing, and it's kind of looking all the way back across. And it says, if someone was to say, John, in all these years in your ministry, what has been the greatest joy? His response is, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in the truth. What does he mean? His own blood children? No, he means the people in the church that I have taught. No greater joy than to see those in the church that I have taught walking in the word that I have taught them. To walk in the truth literally could be translated walking about in the sphere of the truth of God's word. Walking about in the sphere of the truth of God's word. It's a, a course or a conduct of life that does not go outside the boundaries of God's word. 
No greater joy than that. I understand what he meant by that. I understand what Jesus was going for as he was preaching in Solomon's porch on this day. He's going for Christians like that, for real converts. Not just followers who will decide later they don't want to follow him, but real converts with fruit that remains. Not long ago, Pastor Chuck Smith was going somewhere and he called me up and he said, can you be my dummy in the carpool lane? I got to go somewhere and I need, you know, how some people buy those dummies so they can cheat and drive in the carpool lane. And they look like real people sitting there as passengers and the cops won't stop them. So he said, can you be my carpool dummy for a while? I want to go and look at this thing. And so I said, yeah, sure, that's easy. So I took a ride with him and we were talking. He immediately brought up the issue of the great saints of God in England. He, we started talking about Spurgeon and Whitfield and Martin Lloyd-Jones and the Wesleys and the great preaching of the Word of God that had gone on there in years gone by and how there was none of that now, relatively. And, and what a tragedy it was, which immediately got me over to the subject of Bill Foote. Pastor Bill, who's right over there, among us even this night from England. And I told him, I said, you know something? I just came back from England, and one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced in my whole life was to go to the church that our former missions pastor has planted and to preach there and to see the people in his church walking in the truth and just so grateful for it, so grateful for his preaching and to see all the fruit coming out of his life. And at that point, I felt, as John wrote, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in the truth. And it's so nice to know that Bill and Carrie are my children. You're such sweet kids. God bless you. But really, after all these years, you know, with Bill, to see him living in the sphere of the truth, taking it seriously, and now passing it on, kind of a grandkid thing. And I told Pastor Chuck, I said, you know, that's one of the greatest joys I've ever known. In fact, the joy was so great that when we came home from our time in England, I said to our kids, what was your favorite time that you had on our trip through England? And the kids all at once, all three of them said, when we went to Pastor Bill's church. And I just, oh, thank you, Lord, because we went a lot of places. And that was their greatest joy. They see Bill and Carrie as their children, too. And I was just kidding. <laughs> But you understand, when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Anybody called to the ministry, Christ here preaching in Solomon's porch, the apostles with him at the time, they began to understand, this is what we're after. We're after real converts that really know God and take their life with Him seriously. So the mark of a sheep in God's hands. Then we get to the safety of a sheep in God's hands. And the promise is that they will never perish. If you look at John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. How does that strike you when you read it? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. I think it strikes a lot of people like this. I think a lot of people's reaction when they read this is, but what if? I know it says that, but what if? What if? What if I should live to be very, very old and walk with God, but then suddenly fall into some great sin? What if? What if I should just be overwhelmed with wave after wave of temptation? What if? The answer, they shall never perish. 
But what if, wait a minute, what if I'm assaulted by the devil in areas where I would least expect it and least be guarded? The answer? They shall never perish. You see, I think so many people look at this and read it, and their reaction is, but what if? The answer remains the same. Put whatever you want in there. Put whatever what if. A man could be a child of God and go to hell if he misbehaves. How? If Jesus says he will never perish. So many issues are settled. At this point, one time, Dr. H.A. Ironside, who's one of my great heroes, he was preaching on this theme of the safety of the believer eternally. And a woman came up to him after a sermon and she said, I don't agree with your doctrine. And he said, well, why don't you agree with it? And she said, well, you have said that if you're saved, you're saved eternally. You said that. I don't agree with that. And he said to her, well, let me read you a verse that teaches that. And she says, oh, I know, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go to John, to chapter 10, and you're going to read verse 28. And he said, yeah, that's, that's what I'm going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And she said, I know you're going to do that. And as a matter of fact, I just want you to know that I do not agree with your interpretation. He said, I haven't even read it yet. So he turned and he read it. And he read these words in front of us. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And he said, do you believe that? She said, not according to your interpretation. And he said, I haven't interpreted it. I just read it. He said, let me read it to you this way. So he said, supposing this verse said, I give them life for 20 years and they shall never perish for 20 years and no one can snatch them out of my hands for 20 years. He said, what would you think about that? She said, I think they'd be safe for 20 years. He said, fine. He said, suppose I said that they will never perish for 40 years. What would your reaction be to that? She said, well, they'd they'd be safe for 40 years. Yeah, they'd be safe for 40 years. He said, well, it doesn't say 20 years and it doesn't say 40 years. It says eternal life. They shall never perish. And so he said, what do you think about that? She said, I don't believe according to your interpretation. He said, listen, let me tell you what the original Greek says. He says, the original Greek is very strong at this point, never perish. The original Greek says, they shall not ever perish, then adds, forever. They shall not ever perish forever. That's what the original Greek says. He says, let me read it that way now. I give unto them life forever, and they shall never perish forever. He said, do you believe that? She said, not according to your interpretation. At this point, he used to say, not just there, but in many conversations, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And he said, and a woman is sometimes as bad as a man. In other words, it happens with women too. You cannot convince somebody against their will. You can read this text. You can just leave it as Jesus said it, and people will turn flip-flops and say, that's your interpretation when you haven't even interpreted it. You've just read it. The point is, Jesus said what he meant. He meant what he said. It's very clear. If we are his sheep, we will never perish. Well, how do I know if I'm one of his sheep? Because you hear his voice and you follow him. And you're not fooling yourself and you're not fooling God. You hear his voice and you follow him. The promise is then, if that's you, then you will never perish. But it's interesting to read this and to read that the promise implies many dangers. Look at verse 28, John 10:28, And I give them eternal life 
and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So here's his promise, but the promise implies that no one will succeed in plucking you out of his hands, which means it must be that there will be some who will try. Doesn't that make sense? So the promise implies many dangers. And it's really to this degree. I think it's to the degree that you make the Bible and Christ the center of your life and seek to be influential in making it the center of other people's lives, you will experience relatively, in proportion, the dangers that will come. The reason I say that is, I'll show you. Can you turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to verse 23? And here Paul lifts off his own list of dangers that he had been through. And you must understand before we read the list that these dangers basically came ultimately from the devil, ultimately, but they came practically and physically through people often. So look at his list of dangers because we don't want to be naive about what kind of dangers could come our way and how Christ will protect us. So he's talking about being a true servant of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 11:23, he said, I have been in prison, if you go to the middle of the verse, more frequently. I have been flogged more severely. I have been exposed to death again and again. Just stop at that point. This man was basically, we're talking about an ex-rabbi here. So before his life with Christ... He wasn't this great outdoorsman who's climbing Mount Everest. He wasn't trying to sail the seas and circumnavigate the globe in a little tiny sailing ship. He's not that kind of person. He's a rabbi. He teaches. Rabbis taught in a sitting position even. So the guy wasn't all that mobile before, okay? So you have to understand that. He gives his life to Christ when he's not even looking for Christ. The next thing you know, this list becomes his life. So he says, now I've been in prison frequently. I go there often. He says, I've been flogged more severely, get beaten all the time. He said, I've been exposed to death again and again. He says, five times, verse 24, I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes, because they believe 40 would probably kill the man. So it's literally like beaten within an inch of my life. Five times for what? Preaching Christ walking with Jesus. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's a whole different kind of thing from being whipped with a cat of nine tails. Beaten with rods. He said, then of course, there was the time I was stoned. That's where they stoned him to death until he died. God raised him from the dead. And he says, so I was stoned to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. Mark that one in your mind. He said, I spent a night and the day in the open sea. Man, this guy must have looked awful. Can you imagine you go to hear Paul preach and you walk in and what you see is this smear. The guy's a physical smear. He's just a nonstop scar. He walks out and you're going, oh my gosh, it's a human being. And he says, well, I know you're, let's clear up why I look like this. And he would probably give his list often. 
But he says, I have been a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move, not because he wanted to be, but because he was always under death threats. They lower him over the wall in a basket to save his life. And they'd have to get him out of town quick. He says, I have been in danger from rivers. I have been in danger from bandits. I have been in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country. He couldn't go anywhere. I'm getting out of the city, I'll go to the country, I'll be safe. No, there was danger in the country. Danger at the sea and in danger from false brothers. Stop there for just a moment. In danger from false brothers. Isn't that an interesting statement? How could he be in danger from false brothers? They're actually some of the worst dangers. In fact, this epistle he's writing to the Corinthians, the second epistle to the Corinthians, is all about the problem of false brothers in that church, which I believe was the thorn in his side that he prayed about three times for God to remove. They were everywhere in his life. And there's something about false brothers we all need to realize, identify, and never forget. They must become known as true brothers to the extent that they gain some sort of following so they can have an influence before they will ever really be known as false brothers. That's why they're so dangerous. That's why they're so dangerous. He said, in danger from false brothers. Jesus had a false brother on his team, didn't he? What was his name? Judas Iscariot. Three solid years he walked side by side with Jesus, so trusted as a true brother that he was the treasurer. The treasurer. He kept the bag with the money in it. False brothers become widely known first as true brothers with something of a following before they can have an influence, and that's why they're so dangerous. And he says in verse 27, I've labored, I've toiled often, I've gone without sleep, I've known hunger and thirst, I've gone without food, I've been cold, I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So when Jesus says that he will give you eternal life and you will never perish, and neither shall anyone snatch you out of his hand, that implies dangers in the Christian life. Later when Paul writes to the Romans, and we're studying it, we'll get to it, in Romans 8.31, that right in there and on down, he lists off all these basic dangers. What shall se separate me from the love of Christ? And it's almost as if he dipped his pen in the inkwell of his own life. Famine, persecution, distress, and so on. All these things. What shall separate me? If God be for me, he says, who can be against me? Let me put it in very practical terms to where you might be experiencing your life. You may lose your job. You may lose your friends. You may lose your good reputation. But still, you will not be lost in terms of your eternal life. Let me give it to you another way. The promise is not that the ship will not go to the bottom. The promise is not that the ship will not go to the bottom. The promise is the passengers will all reach the shore. The promise is not that the house will not burn down, but that all of the people will escape safely. It's that kind of thing. The very promise that he will hold you in this way implies danger, implies difficulty, implies tragedies, implies crisis, but that you will be safe still. Very powerful. It affects your whole view of the Christian life. So let me ask you this question. I've read you the text. You can decide whether it's my interpretation or not. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Do you feel that you're safe in the arms of Jesus Christ? 
He has said they will never perish. He means it. If you do, then you can get on with your life in a way that is powerful and glorious. And you now have a gospel to preach that is unparalleled. You have the gospel the world needs. You have the doctrine, if I could put it that way, the world needs. They need to hear of a rescuing God that when He rescues you, you are eternally saved from that point on. That's the gospel Paul the Apostle preached. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. That's the gospel that Peter preached. That's the gospel of the Bible. Promise it will never perish. The promise implies dangers. The promise is what I would call a supernatural double wall of safety. And I want to conclude with this thought on this issue. In my own carpentry experience, which is somewhat slim, but it's there. I took a wood shop in high school. And in my carpentry experience, I have found building this and that and the other along the way in my life and worked, you know, on houses being built. That when you come to one of, you're using nails and you want to form a strong joint. So you have two pieces of wood. You will take an extra long nail and you'll drive it through the wood until it comes out the other side and sticks out the other side. And then what you do is you pound that extra length down. And that forms a more secure joint than if you simply pounded the nail through the wood but not out the other side. If you have worked with wood at all in this way, you know that one nail usually doesn't do it because you can still spin the wood. But if you drive two through and then drive over that extra length, you've got a solid joint that's formed there, binding them together, the wood together. That's exactly what Jesus does here. He takes two pillars, as it were, two nails, as it were. Look at how it works out. Nail number one, he says in verse 28, I give them eternal life. Boom, he pounds in the nail. It comes out the other side, and they shall never perish. Boom, he pounds it over and anchors it in. And then just in case you're standing off on the what-if side, he takes another long nail. He says in verse 28, And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Boom, he pounds in the second nail. It comes out the other side. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Boom, he pounds it down flat. I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. I'm holding them, my Father's holding them. Boom, boom. Now it's solid. How solid does it have to be? In fact, it cannot be any more solid than that. Am I safe eternally when I come to Christ? If I believe the teaching, the pure teaching of Jesus Christ without adding anything to it, I am. I am. And that opens my heart to receive joy from Him in all kinds of circumstances in life. Safe in the hands of God. Let's move on now. We come to this claim to be God of Jesus Christ. There are those that say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But you see, John wrote his whole gospel to prove that he was. To prove that he was. And he started in verse 1, he said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Down in verse 14, he said, That Word became flesh, to show he's talking about Jesus Christ as the Word. He dwelt among us, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He wraps up the whole gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, and he says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. His hope is when you're done with his gospel, you will have eternal life and you will never perish. You will be a sheep who hears his voice and you will be following him throughout the rest of your life. 
because you know that he's God and you respond to his claims. Jesus Christ clearly claimed to be one with God. In verse 30 of John 10, he says, I and my Father are one. Now, this has to do with, obviously, in the context, being one in will. One in will. Our will, the will of the Father and mine is the same. My Father has given sheep to me. My hands are around them. They will never be plucked from my hands. His hands are around them. They will never be plucked from his hands. We are both holding each one of those sheep. We are one in our will to save and to rescue. When they would come to Jesus at different times in his life and talk to him, and he would say things like in chapter 4, verse 34, when they came to him and he was tired and they are talking to him and he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. When he made statements like that, or I seek not my own will but the will of the Father who sent me, he wasn't just saying, I'm busy, I have to go here, I have to go there. Well, that's inherent in it. He was really saying in the ultimate sense, My food, my fulfillment, my life is one with the Father's will, which is what? To ultimately come into this world and save as many as possible and save them in such a way that they will be safe eternally from that moment on and that not one of them will be lost, that not one of whom the Father has given me in salvation will be lost, not even one, because He has given them to me. And we are one in our wills together. The will is to see them saved and taken safely, eternally to heaven with no loss in between. One in will. But it also meant one in power in essence. In other words, Jesus, when he says, I and my Father are one, is saying, I'm God. If anybody ever says to you, where in the Bible does Jesus claim to be God? He never claimed to be God. Right here he claims to be God. He claims to be God. It is so obvious to his enemies. Because if you look at verse 31, it says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They're trying to kill him again. Why? Verse 33, they said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself what? God. You're saying to us, you're God. It was crystal clear to them. Where in the Bible does Jesus say that he's God? Right here. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. See, when he said nobody can pluck them out of my hands and no one can pluck them out of my Father's hands, in theological terms he was saying, I am one in substance with the Father. I'm God. That's what he was saying. He clearly claimed to be one with God and to be God. And because he did that, he clearly calls men to believe on him as God. And he was doing that there. Did you notice that they pick up the stones to stone him? Did you notice that he doesn't run? He doesn't run. They pick up the stones. Imagine a circle of people around you. They all pull out guns. They loose the safety on the gun. They pull it back. They're ready. They just pull that trigger. Boom, it fires. He's effectively standing in a circle of people with their guns cocked and ready to shoot. That's what the rocks were. They were going to kill him with rocks. So they're ready to shoot. He doesn't run. He just stands there very calmly. He knows exactly how much time he has. He's God. And he stands there very calmly. Besides, he's not done yet. And what is so glorious to me is that he's not done calling on them one more time to believe in him and be saved. These are his enemies. He had every right at that point to 
call down fire from heaven and fry him on the spot. They're trying to kill him. He could have just stood back and laughed and said, you guys are hysterical. You and your little rocks, your pea shooters, your slingshots. You want to see a real death? Everybody else stand back. Those that know my voice and follow me stand back. I'm going to french fry them one at a time. You know, he could have done anything he wanted. Instead, they're ready to kill him. He just stands there calmly, goes on preaching. It's almost like, hold it, I'm not done yet. And what he does is he says this. cannot honestly find fault with my works. In verse 32, he says, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. By the way, which one of these works are you stoning me for? Oh, well, uh, uh, well, well, it's not about your works. He brought this up because, I don't know if you've ever seen it like this before, but each one of his works, each one, healing the blind man just recently who'd been born blind, that had never been done in the history of the world. That was a creative act. He had creative power sent into those eyes. He created eyes that could see. Just each one, to raise Lazarus from the dead as he will do in the next chapter, each one stands alone as proof that he's God. Just take one of them. It stands alone as proof that he's God. Add them up collectively. You have an irrefutable path that's been blazed through Palestine. Everywhere you look, this man is God. So he says, so by the way, for which one of my works, uh, before you throw, which one of my works are you going to stone me for? I did a lot of them, so could just, just before you kill me, just tell me which one. They knew that only God could do such things. So they don't even try to deal with that. They don't even try. And so he says, you can't honestly find fault with my works. Then he effectively says, you can't honestly find fault with my words either. You see, they accused him of blasphemy for his verbal claims. They said in verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, well, for a good work, we're not stoning you. It's kind of like, let's not get into that side of it. Why? Because it was irrefutable. They just did not want to deal with it. For a good work, we don't stow you. But for blasphemy, because you just said you're God. You said it verbally. Jesus responded from the scripture in a way that it may be difficult for you as you read 34 and 35. But to a rabbinical mind, it would have instantly made sense. And so for us, we've got to kind of reason our way into the time period and the history of it and all of that. But basically, in verse 34... He responds to them scripturally and he answered them. He says, is it not written in your law, specifically Psalm 81, where it says, I said, you are gods. That's God talking, speaking of men. And he says in verse 35, if, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, he said, do you say of him whom the father has sanctified and sent into the world that you're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God? The point is this. Jesus is saying, okay, you're saying I have asserted something very improper that's worthy of dying. I'm blasphemy. Let me just quote the scripture here. Your law, which you study, where God himself calls men gods with a little g. And he calls them that because they've been delegated authority from God to stand on the behalf of God, to minister the word of God on the behalf of God and call people to submit to that. They were the judges of Israel, if you look at the passage. He says, okay, I come along and I'm telling you I'm the Son of God. I'm telling you I have authority from God the Father, and I do the works of God the Father. 
I am one sent from God with authority from God, doing the works of God, speaking the word of God, and calling you to submit to it. The only thing is, there's such a major difference, because if you look behind me at all my works, every single individual one of them stands as a standalone proof, I am God. Therefore, you cannot accuse me honestly of blasphemy for saying I'm the Son of God. I have works all around this country that prove that my claims are what they are to be. And everybody knows that if someone asserts something, you just say, well, show me your work and and prove to me your claim is true. If I've gone shopping and I have a teenager at home, and I call from the mall and I say, How's everything going over there? Oh, fine, fine, fine. And the house is spotless and everything's clean. We clean the whole house. Well, okay, we'll validate that claim when I come home and see if your works have been done and the living room really is neat as a pin and everything isn't just shoved in some corner with a sweater over it. We'll find out. You validate your claims with your works. Jesus is saying, you're finding fault with my claim. There's nothing wrong with my claim because you cannot deny and you won't even deal with it that my claims are validated by my works. I am God. Thus, you cannot honestly find fault with my works. You cannot honestly find fault with my words. They're still hanging onto their rocks, you know. They're ready to stun them. And so he comes now to his, really his last appeal to these men that are going straight to hell when they die. They have had more light than anybody up until that point in human history. They've had God himself come and call them to salvation. If you don't know Christ, he's calling you to the same salvation right now. You may have tried to weasel your way through with your arguments, but you cannot deny his works if you'll be honest about it. Nobody but God could do the things Jesus did. And you cannot deny his claims because his works validate them. And if you're not a Christian today, if you don't know his voice, if you don't hear it and you don't really follow him, if you just attend with others, you're going straight to hell when you die. And you will be tried on the evidence of all the truth you knew but played with and toyed with and trifled with. You must respond to him. He's calling them as they're ready to kill him to drop their rock and come to salvation. He's saying one last time before you get ready to kill me. We're going to wait just one more moment. Is there anybody here who wants to be saved? I'm going to wait one more moment. And then he was out of there permanently. And so he says to them in 1037, If I do not the works of my father, then don't believe me. I'm just another guy spouting out words. But if you honestly look at what I have done, you will come to the conclusion, as any human being will, that I am everything I claim to be. Verse 38, But if I do the works of the Father, though you don't believe me, believe the works. Why? He wants them saved. He loves them. In spite of their rejection so far, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. He's saying this, to those of you ready to pitch your stones and kill me and reject me, Get me out of your life permanently. To those of you who, because of all of your religious traditions, your religious prejudices, have kept you back from this born-again experience he told Nicodemus about, he said, if your religious prejudices and your garbled mindset full of baggage of the traditions of men cannot allow you to deal with my words, 
then forget the words for a moment and turn and look at my works and you will come to the instant conclusion I'm God. And anybody that will do that and be honest will come to the conclusion he's God. You have no excuse for not being a Christian. If you've heard the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done, you have no excuse. Even if you're so hung up in your thinking, so garbled because of your religious background that you can't listen to straight Bible teaching without saying something like, that's your interpretation. Even if you're in that place, you still don't have an excuse. It's all so clear. He's saying, look again unto me one last time. Forget my words for a moment and be saved now. Oh, you would think they would have everyone dropped those rocks and run to kneel at his feet. Sadly. Verse 39 we read, Therefore they sought again to seize him, and he escaped out of their hand. How he did it, we don't know. We're not told. It's God. He could have done anything he wanted to do. Could have blinded him like they blinded the people in Sodom. Could have done anything he wanted to do. But he escaped. But sadly... He walked out of their life forever. And they died, those men, without him. The blessing came then as he left. This was a, this was a hard time in his life. He'd spent fall, gone away a little while, maybe to Galilee, come back, spent winter. All of his sermons were ended with no response effectively. We know the blind man was saved. All of his sermons were, fell on hard hearts, no changes. So he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem in the time that had not been a blessing. And I bring this up because not all times in the Christian life are a blessing like that. The greatest blessing of all, so many mornings, so many days I start my life, the greatest blessing of all is this, I will never perish. Good times, bad times, blessed times, horrible times, I will never perish. One of these days I'm going to die permanently and I'm going to heaven forever. I will never perish. That is the great overarching blessing of my life that keeps me going every day. I have a deep-seated joy in that, whether things are being blessed around me or not, in the sense of being a blessing. You understand what I mean by that? If you're walking in God's will, you're blessed, man. You're right on target. It may be very difficult. Jesus was smack dab in the middle of God's will, and they're trying to kill him. If we can put it in quotation marks, that's not such a blessing. So, not all times are outwardly Blessed, the critical issue is, do I hear his voice and do I follow him and will I never perish? That is a blessed thing to know. That's a blessing the world can't give and the world can't take away. Jesus told me in this passage. Do you have it? Don't leave here tonight without it. You get it by opening your heart and believing on him, trusting on him. You don't believe about him. You don't believe in him in the sense of, well, everybody's got to believe in something, you know, so... I kind of believe in Jesus. I'm, I'm kind of getting into being this Christian thing. You know, you don't get into being this Christian thing. You either believe on Him. You trust in Him. You cling to Him and rely upon Him with your life forever. To trust Him with your life forever. Or you don't. And there is no in between. Have you done that? Do it now if you haven't. Just say, Jesus, yes. The answer is yes, Lord. Right now. Let's make it really quick, Lord. Just in case. Yes. The answer is yes. And he'll take it from there. He will. Not all times are blessed, but the life can be blessed. It says they sought to seize him, and he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing the first, and he stayed. I love this because that was a blessed time. That's where he met his first disciples. 
That's where the first guy said, yes, I want to follow you. I will leave everything to follow you. And I know my life will never be the same again. He went back there. Out of the busyness of the city where you have to kind of fight to keep people's attention. Where you deliver the sermon and they go back to their busyness and they forget it right away. Out to the quiet of the Jordan. Where people came out to hear him with the intention to sit and listen and follow through with what they heard. There he went. It was a blessed time. Many came. And many in that time came to know Christ. He went out there to where John had preached. He entered into a good, solid preaching had gone in that place for so long with John the Baptist. And many believed. Many believed. It was a blessed time outwardly and inwardly. And so we come to the end of John 10. Studying the life of Jesus is so rich, isn't it? You, if you know him, will never perish. That's not my interpretation. His promise. And no matter how rough it gets, because there's built-in dangers in that promise, you still won't perish. Settle the issue that you hear his voice and you follow him and get on and be glad about it. And you can have joy even in the midst of the most difficult time in life. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you for sending your blessed only Son to lavish your grace upon us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that your hand is wrapped around us. Thank you, Father, that your hand is wrapped around his, that we are safe in the hands of God. And thank you, Lord, that underneath us, even beyond that, are the everlasting arms of God. Oh, Lord, thank you that you are a rescuing God, and once we're rescued, we're safe eternally. Help us to see these things clearly, Lord, to make it part of our message and our gospel and our life. And we will give you all the glory and honor and praise. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.